0: Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I needed some extra coffee this morning. Did you? Yeah, it's the first Sunday of May. Uh, It's a busy time. Students are in the midst of finals. Um, if you have kids in school and you're a parent, the end of the year events are stacking up, filling the calendar. Um, all of us are just waiting for summer uh, to come here in Athens. Um, and I got up really early yesterday. Maybe some of you got up early as well for the coronation of King Charles. Uh, did you watch it? All right, I, I think I'm required to, as Anglican clergy, we have to watch such things. <laughs> When else do you see Westminster Abbey pulling out all the stops? And uh, the pageantry was, of course, delightful. Some amazing moments during the service. Uh, the music was incredible. I think my favorite part was uh, they had a sung Kyrie, The Lord Have Mercy, uh, by Sir Bryn Turfel, who's a Welsh opera singer. Um, the sermon, Archbishop Justin Welby, um, pointed us to the King of Kings whose throne was a cross, whose crown was made of thorns, and whose regalia consisted of the wounds that pierced his body. And I think my favorite part of the entire affair um, was seeing uh, Nick Cave, maybe you know the Australian singer Nick Cave, uh, with his brand new best friend, Archbishop Rowan Williams. (laughs) That was his plus one for the occasion. Um, I'll admit, I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Uh, Lord willing, hopefully we'll see it at least one more time, um, looking at the timelines. But um, I'll tell you, (laughs) yeah, you got that one. (laughs) Um, They published a liturgy about a week ago, and as a clergy nerd, um, I had fun looking at the liturgy and comparing it to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in the 1950s, and that comparison means that I am obligated to be a little grumpy this morning. See, glorious as the service was, there were some glaring omissions in the service. If you compare it to the event in 1953, if you compare it to a typical Anglican communion service, did you notice? There were four glaring omissions and I want to bring these up because I thought it was fairly significant and it's worth thinking about what does it say about the role and place of Christian faith in the modern world that these things were left out the first was the Nicene Creed not used in the service at all first time there Uh, a confession of sin not used in the service An absolution for sin, not used in the service. Prayers of the people for the entire world, usually one of the hallmarks of the coronation service because you're praying for everything, not used in the service. Hmm. Pageantry and ritual aplenty, but missing the sure foundation of our faith. Clear good news of the gospel dynamic prayer and practice, and it just occurred to me as I compared the liturgy, as I watched yesterday, that these choices show something that was clear in the choices that were made. I think for that service, and for many, there is a lack of confidence in the goodness and the exclusivity of the Christian faith and gospel. Now, I know that in times past, the church has been guilty of arrogance, violence, coercion. As we've encountered people of other faiths and of no faiths, we've not always done a good job honoring the dignity of each person, the image of God in each person, the uniqueness of human experience. We've sometimes not thought, hey, how can we be creative to work with other people for the common good? But surely there's been an overcorrection, Yesterday, I realized I was watching something that the 20th century German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. He defined that as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline. And this was one that got me communion without confession, a confession of faith or a confession of sin. It's an anemic substitute for the real thing. And it's at odds with the gauntlet thrown down by our Lord in this passage, John 14, verse 6. And so I just wanted to look at this today. Um, This is more or less, and I don't do this often, this is more or less a guardrail sermon. (laughs) Let's make sure we're not running off the road and we're all on the same page about something very basic uh, to the Christian faith. So we're in John 14 this morning. Uh, This is the middle of the Upper Room Discourse, which is a five-chapter masterclass by Jesus uh, during Holy Week, right before his Passion and mighty Resurrection. Um, The Upper Room Discourse in John, those five chapters, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, those three chapters, for me, form the most basic one-two punch of the major extended teachings of our Lord in the Gospels about discipleship, about the kingdom, about the Trinity, about the church. Uh, Martin Luther said the 14th chapter and the two that follow it contain the beautiful sermon delivered by Christ himself after the celebration of the Last Supper on the threshold of his suffering and his departure from his beloved disciples. He wrote, indeed, here we find the best and most comforting sermon preached by Christ while on this earth. The section should be sweet comfort, encouragement to Christians. But instead, I think, especially in verse six, many have found the teaching here by Jesus to be embarrassing or to be a stumbling block. So let's walk through. We're going to look at the first part and then we'll key in on verse six. Uh, John 14, one through four. uh, Jesus, with a word of comfort, talks about our eternal home. Jesus is going away. The disciples are anxious about where he's going, whether they'll be able to follow him. And Jesus wants to prepare them. He wants to get them ready. And so he tells them about his father's house. And these are familiar words of comfort. They're often read at funeral services. Um, He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also his father's house. Do you know the other time the gospel of John mentions his father's house? It's John chapter two. It's when Jesus is going into the temple. And the point about the temple within the life of the people of Israel was that the temple is where God dwells with his people. It's where heaven and earth meet. The glory of God is present. And Jesus begins to hint now about a new temple, a new house of his father, a new place uh, where he will be, a new house. Heaven and earth will meet again when God renews the whole world. I often think what we would think of as heaven more popularly, Jesus just says, that's where I am. It's to be with him. It's not about a mansion. It's about our host, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus doesn't give us a full picture of this future, but the sketch he gives um, is enough to address our commonly troubled hearts about life after death, isn't it? We can trust him. And we can trust those whom we love but see no longer are with the Lord. Uh, We can trust that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God and Christ. And so even without a clear picture of our destination, we can follow and trust our reliable a good Shepherd, that we talked about last week. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Roman Catholic uh, doctor of the church, says, God destines us for an end beyond the grasp of reason. We can't quite grasp it, it's out there, but we can trust. And so look at verses five through seven. Um, Thomas, God bless Thomas, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. The disciples are confused because Jesus tells them, hey, you already know the way. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me in this passage. If you want to get to my Father's house, you come through me, the Lord Jesus says. It's one of his great one-liners. Even our our colleague, our prayer earlier brought it up. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can probably memorize it just this morning. It's got a cadence to it. It's memorable. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just wonder as you hear that, is that good news or bad news? Should we rejoice in this? Or is it something to be embarrassed by? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because you see, our eternal home intersects with our eternal hope in this passage, in this verse. Um, Dale Bruner, who's written a masterful commentary on John, says in this verse, think about it, the way. He says, if you think about Eastern thought, the East has perennially longed for the way, the Dao. What's the way? What's the path? Western civilization could be characterized as a pursuit of truth. Veritas. What's the real truth that is out there? And every people everywhere has sought life, sought fullness. And here we have Jesus in person all three, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, The guardrail part of this sermon this morning would just say, hey, we really do think that if you are seeking salvation, we go through Jesus. There's not another way to do so. That's what he tells us here. He's very clear. Um, And and I don't think it's something to be embarrassed by or to hide behind. Um, I think the best question that I usually hear is what about those who haven't heard? And you know what the church used to answer to that? Go tell them. Engage in mission. Follow the Great Commission. It's a good question, but think about it. Saying I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That Jesus is the way of salvation. As Father Bill mentioned last week, this flies against popular consensus. I think that Father Bill was reading Bishop N.T. Wright. Because here's what he said. The belief that all religions are really the same sounds nice and democratic, though the study of religions quickly shows it isn't true. What you're really saying if you claim they're all the same is that none of them are more than distant echoes, distorted images of reality. You're saying that reality, God, the divine, whatever, is remote and unknowable, and that neither Jesus or Buddha or Moses, Krishna, whatever, gives us direct access to it. He writes, the idea of a vague, general truth to which all religions bear some kind of oblique witness is foreign to Christianity. Here, Jesus says, I show you God. I am the way. I am the pathway. Um, and that can seem like a, a heavy teaching, right? Right? And so sometimes it helps to uh, engage in story and form. And so um, because I want to be Dr. Bressler when I grow up, (laughs) I have brought my childhood copy of The Silver Chair of The Chronicles of Narnia. Because there's a part at the beginning of this story where this truth is illustrated. um, And there's just something about instead of engaging in a combative argument, that a story can be far more effective. An image can be far more helpful, and so um, this is the silver chair. And in chapter two, um, we meet the two little children. You've got Eustace Scrubb and Jill Pole. They have been whisked off to Narnia. Um, they're on this mountain, this clearing, and uh, Eustace has actually fallen. He was okay, don't worry. But Jill is left alone. She doesn't know where she is. She's in this clearing, and she's incredibly thirsty. There's a stream running, and she goes, I'm going to go satisfy my thirst. Um, I've often thought that this scene seems like it's right out of the Gospel of John because John loves water. (laughs) John loves the idea that we have a thirst that needs to be quenched and needs to be satisfied. And so she is following this stream because she wants to drink. She's dreadfully thirsty, and all of a sudden she comes upon a lion. That is Aslan, the figure. Um, And what they say are very interesting. She has a conversation with the lion. (laughs) The lion tells her, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Seems pretty fair, right? If you're thirsty, come and drink. Um, And she's scared. She's tentative. She's really thirsty, but she doesn't know about this lion. She hesitates. The lion says, are you not thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst, Jill. Then drink, said the lion. (laughs) May I, could I, uh, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And Lewis writes, the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain To move aside for her convenience. The rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. She's thirsty. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. Isn't this like us? (laughs) Lord, would you leave us alone? Lord, would you do this on our terms? Lord, it's not gonna hurt, is it? (laughs) I make no promise. Said the lion. And she was thirsty now. She's inching closer and says, Do you eat girls? (laughs) It's a good question. He says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst said the lion I suppose I must go and look for another stream then There is no other stream said the lion And it says it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion Once she did drink by the way it says it was the coldest most refreshing water she had ever tasted Many of us approach the stream. Many of us approach the lion. Many of us approach the Lord, hoping there are other streams, or He'll leave us alone, or it won't hurt or cost us anything. It occurred to me that we're we're sometimes more quick to hope there are other streams, other ways, than rejoicing that there is a stream at all. I mean, she's thirsty thanks be to God, there's a stream where her thirst can be quenched. She's asking about other streams. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I wonder why are we sometimes more concerned with whether or not there are other ways, different truths, other approaches to life, than just praising God for what he has sufficiently, abundantly provided in Jesus. The clear teaching of the New Testament is not that there were many ways of salvation and now Jesus has narrowed it down like he's a bottleneck. The clear teaching of the New Testament is there was no way of salvation. And thanks be to God, now there is. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Hebrews 10 tells us that the trail blazed by the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, allows us to now approach the very throne of God to approach the stream and have our thirst quenched. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The New Testament consistently rejoices that there is now a way, that God has made a way, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then gently, almost as a minor note, says, hey, and there's, there's not another one. The Lord Jesus was clear in John fourteen six: No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, the early church got this very clearly. We see in one of Peter's first sermons in Acts 4, speaking of Jesus, says, there, is no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Dale Bruner, who I mentioned, wrote this commentary on John that's it's masterful. He asked the question, is Christ Exclusive or inclusive? Is Christ exclusive or inclusive? It's a good question. He said, We would have to say that Jesus is exclusive because of the New Testament witness and the early Christian confession Jesus is Lord. He writes, I do not believe there is any other Lord or any other way of salvation for anyone. But here's the twist he notes. The exclusive Jesus of the New Testament is, of course, remarkably inclusive in his public ministry of love and outreach. Everyone is welcomed in by the way of Jesus. Those who were formerly outcast, think about how he treats women and Samaritans and lepers and Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners. He is remarkably inclusive. Inclusive. The only exclusivity is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Bruner says, Christ is the exclusive way to God vertically. Yet the witnesses to him in the New Testament portray him as remarkably inclusive in his outreach to the world horizontally. That's the balance. And that's what I was just, I was watching the coronation going, man, we have, we've lost our balance. We've lost our confidence in the goodness of the Christian message and the good news. This is basic Christianity. Do we remember our need for salvation? Do we delight in our Savior and what God has done to make a way? Let us hold fast to our confession. Hold fast and cling to our risen Lord as he holds on to us. In the name of the Father and of the Son,